and I screamed at him. You know, I mean, run, dummy. You know, just like, that, that, I don't remember what I said, but Pat Hallmark said vividly, I just remember you barking at this guy that was going to eat you alive all the way around the bases. Then you got eight up, eight down, didn't tell anybody, and I hit him with 94 in the ribs, and he threw the bat at me and came out after me. All right, welcome to episode seven of From Phenom to the Farm, an interview series presented by Baseball America. I'm Kyle Bandujo, I'm your host, and as always, I hope everyone is staying safe. Appreciate you taking the time to check out this podcast. On this episode, we got part one of our talk with former Major League pitcher Chad Durbin. Chad was a third-round draft pick, signed as an 18-year-old back in 1996, through his last professional pitch for the Phillies in 2013 at age 35. He's got some great perspective and stories about a, a long career. In this first installment, you're going to get some great uh, college recruiting stories, life in the late 90s minor leagues with bench-clearing brawls and mascot fights, uh, and just how a young guy tries to hang around and entrench himself in the major leagues. In part two, which is going to drop on Tuesday, May 19th, we're going to focus on Chad's big league career, you know, talk about coming back from an injury, bouncing around organizations, you know, just struggling to find a foothold back in the majors, as well as what it's like playing on a World Series champion. If you enjoy this first part with Chad, want to hear part two and any upcoming episodes as soon as they're released every other Tuesday, please subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcast. And if you so wish, take the time, leave a five-star rating and a review. Those do help the podcast. Also, make sure to check out everything going on at BaseballAmerica.com. Even with baseball in North America on hold, BA is still going strong with draft content as well as fantastic reporting on the ongoing MLB and MILB negotiations regarding the future of minor league baseball. You can also follow me on Twitter at Kyle Banduho. I'll be posting updates on this series with future guest and episode info as well as my weekly sports movie podcast, Big Screen Sports, which comes out every Monday. With that, I hope you enjoy the seventh episode of From Phenom to the Farm, part one of our talk with former big league pitcher Chad Durbin. All right, joining me today, uh, 14-year big league veteran, third-round pick by the Royals in 1996, pitcher Chad Durbin. Chad, thanks so much for taking the time today. Kyle, it's a pleasure to be on. Uh, I've listened to your interviews. They're fantastic. Glad to be a part. I appreciate that. Yeah, and um, you know, we're, we're doing this in a, in a weird time, no baseball know no much of anything so um, you know i'm thankful you could uh you know i know everyone like both of us we you know family's home kids home so uh you know thanks for for taking the time to tell your story um starting out you know tell the folks about yourself where you're from what sports you played growing up uh how you got into baseball sure i um i grew up until i was 12 years old in a small town uh, LaSalle, Illinois, small town in the Midwest, uh, right where Interstate 80 and Interstate 39 intersect. And, um, you know, later on in my life, I, you know, found out that that was like right, right down the middle of the Midwest league. So we, we crisscrossed over my old hometown a good bit, um, which we'll circle back to later on. Um, but yeah, I grew up, um, you know, parents were young. Um, I think that's, uh, you know, kind of the normal in the late seventies, um, mid seventies, late seventies. Uh, in fact, when I, um, graduated high school, um, I remember thinking like, you know, my dad's old and, uh, you know, come to find out, like I'm, I have a 12 year old and I'm 42 now. And my dad was, you know, just turning 40 years old. 
Um, you know, so I look back at that and just the different perspective, um, you know, he had on all the things that we're going to talk about. Um, my mom, my mom was uh, a year older than him. So she was also really young, just out of college. And so when I, when I, you know, look back at it from, from, you know, the time I can remember, you know, the first couple Star Wars movies are kind of mile markers, the, the, the Cubs in 1984, I just started to find WGN. Um, at like six, six years old, all I wanted to do was watch the Cubs play and Rick Sutcliffe pitch and Fergie Jenkins pitch and Ron Say waddle down to first and, and that type of stuff and Jody Davis catch. So I fell in love with baseball at a young age. Um, we had a great neighborhood in a, in a small town, um, with a bunch of kids around my age. So, um, we, uh, you know, we managed to, um, you know, be adopted a little bit by, by some neighbors that had good yards and we'd play in those yards. A guy named Hoot. Uh, it wasn't Mr. Hoot. It wasn't Hoot something else. It was just simply the guy's name was Hoot. And, um, you know, he had a yard enough for us to go out there and play, uh, probably from seven, eight, nine years old. And then as we got bigger, they, they kind of repositioned us. Um, but we played everything, um, you know, as far as playing sports growing up and, and, and my parents were, were fantastic. Um, no complaints there. Uh, I got to walk two blocks to elementary school and walk about nine or 10 to, um, third, fourth and fifth grade, which was kind of a, a, you know, a middle, middle of the road elementary before junior high. And, uh, just had a, had a really good group of kids. We played as soon as it started snowing in the fall, we played, um, we played football and we were the Chicago bears. And they were really good back then. If you think about what the, the 84, 85, um, 86 Bears um, teams were, were legendary with Walter Payton and, and Mike Ditka and, and, and all that stuff. And, um, you know, so we played that. And as soon as, uh, you know, basket, I mean, as soon as, you know, the football um, kind of got too cold to go do anything, we, we, you know, if we got into a gym at the YMCA or, or at the local school, we shot basketball and we were, um, you know, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and eventually, uh, Michael Jordan when he came on the scene. So, um, it's pretty good to have Walter Payton and, and Michael Jordan as, as your non-baseball, uh, guys to look up to growing up. And then as soon as it was possible to play baseball, um, you know, we played baseball and we had, I, I had some really fun friends. One of them's a neurosurgeon now, another one's a CEO at a big company, um, all out of this small town, but we kept like these imaginary stats of, uh, every home run we hit, every strikeout we got. I mean, not that you strike out much in tennis ball, but we made up our stats and, um, and it never stopped. Like the only time it ever ended was like at the end of the year. And, you know, you, you know, you had 550 home runs and 12,000 RBIs and just completely, you know, arbitrary numbers getting thrown out by a bunch of kids that were collecting baseball cards and, 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 you know, loving the Cubs and, and the White Sox, and um, you know, so the Midwest was kind of flush. And being from the middle of Illinois, you had half of my friends loved the St. Louis Cardinals, and and they were actually really, really good during that stretch of time. I was just such a Cubs homer that um, I hated on them. I loved every player. I mean, I, you know, naming the players, it was you know early on, um, you know, it was a completely different set of guys. It was Bruce Suter and 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 uh, Keith Hernandez and. Yeah, obviously, Ozzy Smith was there, but Andy Van Slyke was in center field. So, I mean, you could see that I love baseball and that I can just list off these guys. But it had a tremendous influence coming home every day from school and 220 start for, on WGN. The Cubs were playing because they didn't have lights. 
Um, so the influence was being a latchkey kid, you know, come rumbling, bumbling, stumbling to the house. Both parents were working and, um, and busy. So, you know, my butt sat in front of a TV and listened to Harry Carey and Steve Stone and, and those guys kind of, uh, you know, pour their baseball knowledge, uh, through the TV onto me. And, um, I, I know that's why I was a better baseball player as far as baseball knowledge is concerned than a lot of the rest of the guys. I just, you know, took in what Steve Stone said. I, I had no, I, I thought that guy was just some random dude. I didn't know he was a Cy Young winner. I didn't know all that stuff till I got older and I started to, you know, meet, either meet these guys in pro ball or uh, look them up and realize, oh my gosh, that guy was a stud and Harry Carey's a legend and I just lucked out and this is what I did on a daily basis. So, um, you know, from the ages of six to nine, maybe 10 years old, that was, that was every day. 11 and 12, you get a little bit older, you're riding your bike a little bit further into uh, town to go play with friends. And it was the same stuff. We were still playing the sports, but you, you had like RBI baseball and baseball stars start to come out on Nintendo. So we'd play basketball and baseball, but there was always this pull to go inside and see if you could beat the other guy in some other game. Um, we just had a really good, uh, a really good childhood. And then at a, at 12 years old, actually at 10, my parents split up and, um, you know, my dad moved about 45 minutes away North and my mom, you know, eventually remarried and he, he moved, he wanted to move us down to Louisiana, which is where I am now, um, to get his master's degree. And so at 12 years old, after my, my last little league summer, um, we moved down to Louisiana and the reason they chose Baton Rouge over Lafayette, which is where he was going to school was because of LSU baseball and how much I love baseball. So, um, it kind of jumped from playing 16 games a year at, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 to 13 and 14 year old, uh, baseball down here at a clip of, you know, I don't know, 45, 55 games a year and playing with, really good baseball players. I mean, we had four, five, six guys on each of our 13, 14 year old teams that went D one or played a long time at the, the pro level. Tim Corcoran, if, if, if you Google him or look him up, he played for 17 years on, on the pro level also, and had probably six, seven, eight years in the big leagues. Um, we were the one and two starters. I asked my 13, 14 year old coach, who's my best friend's dad. So what do I need to do? My kid's 12 years old, turning 13. What do I need to do to have a good team like you had back in the day? And he said, well, you need two guys that have 34 years of career pro time uh, later on in their life going one, two for you. Um, but I, I, it was, a, it was a different world. I came here, I was talented. I didn't know I was that talented. I was just better than everybody in a small town. Um, and then I'm standing next to these kids that are just polished. They look the part and they, they look like the guys I'm watching on TV at a young age because LSU baseball was, um, you know, coming into its own. Skip Berman had, had arrived here, I think in 85, 86 and, uh, Ben McDonald had come through and they were winning national titles. So this was a baseball crazy town. And I just kind of jumped in the middle of it and had to compete, you know, r right then, at a pretty high level. And I still played basketball in seventh and eighth grade. Um, I went to about a, a 75, 80% uh, black school. Um, that, and my mom, you know, the house we got into was, you know, in the part of town that she wanted to live and, and it wasn't on her radar. And, and I'm glad for it now, but I got really good at basketball. I was already, I always, already loved basketball, um, but I had to compete in, in, in a completely different way. And, and there's no sixth, seventh, eighth grade baseball um, uh, down here. It's just, you know, you, you play in the summers and, and you, uh, you kind of compete that way. So 
I got really good at, at basketball. It, it taught me how to compete at something I wasn't quite as good at naturally, but I was gritty and, and, and I could earn respect. I was never disrespectful. Didn't never, never mattered. And a lot of this is due to my mom and, uh, and her, um, kind of painting a good picture of, of what the world really is like and teaching me about, you know, history of, of, of the country in the last 20 years before we moved down, especially in the South. She kind of, um, you know, uploaded a lot of information. So I understood the dynamics, um, with segregation and, and, and everything like that. And you talk about a lot on a 13, 14 year old's plate, but I needed to hear it. And it, it made me a better, um, person, friend, teammate in sports. And, uh, and I had a blast as Kenilworth middle school in in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And a lot of the guys that I played basketball against ended up going on and playing, you know, division one, two, JUCO, NAI basketball, which was uh, a lot of fun. So it wasn't like I was playing against scrubs. I was getting beat or beating guys that were just as good or better than I ever would be. So, you know, went from that to a, a really good high school, public high school, um, you know, baseball program and basketball program, uh, Woodlawn High School. And uh, as a freshman, you know, I had, a, I had my high school baseball coach um, walk up to me. Um, I didn't know he was the high school baseball coach at the time. He walked up and he said, I just wanted you to know, that no, um, no freshman's ever played varsity for me. And I, I, I wasn't even being cocky, but it's a cocky thing to say. I said, which sport? And, um, his, his reply, so he issued a challenge baseball. to you. And, uh, and I said, Oh, okay. Well, so he issued a challenge to you. You know what? He might, he might've been. Um, but I, I said, which sport? And he just kind of looked at me like baseball. And then, uh, you know, the, the, I, I think I, the next thing I said, and I can, this may be, you know, uh, how, how the truth, uh, why let the truth get in, in the way of a good story. Um, I'm pretty sure I said to him, are you sure? And, and he kind of gave me a look and walk, you know, walked into the, the classroom because he had taken me out of classroom, my, my very first class of my, my freshman year. And uh, I went back in the classroom, sat down. I honestly didn't think about it much after that because it wasn't baseball season. I was going to be trying out for the basketball team in two weeks. And, you know, went out, tried out for basketball, and I made the freshman and JV team in basketball. And baseball didn't even come into the fray again until I heard the tryouts were in a couple weeks in late December, you know, come early January. And went out to tryouts. I remember watching some kids not be able to throw a ball from third to first, and I could throw a ball, you know, as hard or as far as anybody I knew. Talking to guys that I played against, 13, 14 years old, I was probably throwing the ball in the mid-80s which is really, really firm. And I had command of it. I was athletic. It wasn't, it wasn't a farce. It wasn't just something that I've heard and made of. I knew it was hard. So as a freshman, I was probably throwing harder than their best pitchers. I just wasn't a, you know, upperclassman. And, you know, that was his way of doing it. Chad, was it that early um, on that you thought that you might have a future in baseball past high school, or was it still just something you were doing for fun at that point? Well, I, I had friends that I played with, and obviously those dads knew baseball because their kids were, were you know, at, at a high level. They were, they were playing pretty well. I would say at 14 and 15, I had some dads grab me and and kind of – I just kind of, you know, brushed it off. But they would say, make make your grades. You know, make sure you pay attention in school because you got a chance to go play um, baseball at the college level, at the high high level of, uh, of college. And – I thought that was really cool, but I, I, I got to be honest with you. My, my goal was to be a, a I want to be a Chicago Cub. 
Kyle, I didn't, I really didn't, the LSU Tigers still didn't move my needle. Um, and that's what they were talking about. You know, you could go to Nichols State, Harvard on the Bayou down here in Thibodeau, Louisiana, or you could go to, you know, Northeast Louisiana, which is another baseball school that nobody really knows about that Ben Sheets came out of. And you, you start, that just wasn't my goal. So unless I was going to be on that type of radar, sure, that's cool. But I really just want to beat everybody I can in high school right now. Um, and see whether I can be the shortstop or the third baseman, you know, as a sophomore, because I'm not going to get to do it as a freshman. And, you know, that kind of all spilled into me um, having to earn everything. Basketball was, the team was 33-1 and one the year before I came to high school. So they weren't looking for obscure freshmen. Um, they were looking for guys that could go make an impact. Same thing on the baseball side. The team was very good when I came in and my, my, my best friend's, you know, older brother, the, the guy that coached his son, he was a left-handed pitcher that probably threw in the low eighties and he was the two or three on that team. And I had to go and, and every one of them knew I was coming and, you know, a kid ahead of me, a grade, uh, a guy named Lance Mayu played at McNeese state, um, in football as a cornerback and a quarterback probably should have played baseball, probably would have played, you know, a little bit into pro ball, but he was the shortstop. And there was another guy in his grade, Ryan Gill, who played pro ball as a shortstop and pitcher. And he was another shortstop. So I was third in line um, as a freshman. And I, did, I had no idea. I mean, maybe that's why the guy said it. Maybe I can challenge this kid. I can see by the look on his face, he ain't scared. Um, so maybe that was in, in retrospect, a challenge, or maybe it was just him, you know, kind of sticking his heels and letting me know that I wasn't going to, you know, gallivant around and do what I wanted to. But I'll tell you it, what it made me do is something that I tell anybody that will listen as they're kind of creeping towards college ball or pro ball is you've got to have an imagination when you're working and you've got to imagine that guy that is either competing with you better than you or trying to catch you. And you've got to outwork him that day. You've got to take more ground balls. You've got to do the extra work. You've got to make sure there's no leverage on the grade side. Go make your grades. Go prep for the ACT. Make sure that nobody has – don't give anybody an excuse. My mom used to say that about my grades. Like, you love baseball. You love basketball. You like driving your little Chevy Blazer that we bought together. Don't give me any leverage. Like, don't show up late to the house when your midnight curfew hits don't make a B, <laughs> you know, don't give me an excuse. And I kind of took a lot of that into the pro setting. I worked out as hard as anybody I know. And I was in the middle of that steroid era. I didn't know everybody was doing steroids and the naivete or whatever you want to call it. I just worked as hard as I could to see if I could get the most out of myself. And then you circle back. That's kind of what happened my sophomore, junior year. I didn't have the weight room. We, I didn't lift a weight until I was a senior in high school. And even then it was abbreviated once a week, maybe trying to squat, you know, I was 155, 160 pounds soaking wet at six, two, which is unthinkable. Now you oh, were coming yeah. up in the mid nineties, thinking about high school kids, not lifting weights. Now it's just almost like a different world. I'm, I'm on the fence with, I have a 12 year old who's going to be 13. And it's like, what do, what do I need to do to make sure that he has some of the functional movements down? watch a bunch of Eric Cressy videos, who's an absolute stud on the strength conditioning side and, and functional movement side. Um, you know, really, you know, ask the right people and, you know, everybody wants to, to get stronger and faster, but when's the appropriate time? Like, when is your body ready? And I, you know, I'm trying to navigate that. I, do I put a PVC, P, I've tried putting PVC pipe in his hand to make sure that when some guy that doesn't know what he's doing, 
makes an entire group lift that at least he's got the, the functional movement down that he won't get hurt. And, you know, yeah. So for me at 16, I can't imagine what 20, 25 more pounds would have done. Cause I was topping out at 93, 94 in high school. I can't imagine what 20 or 30 pounds of muscle and some explosive training would have done. Um, you know, obscure third rounder. Not many, not many guys knew that I was the, you know, I, I kind of got hidden. Cause I was, I was coming in really late to every season cause we played deep into our basketball season. So I'd come in and it was like district and then playoffs. Well, let's talk about, let's talk about that. You mentioned obscure third rounder. You appear on a total of one BA scouting report for your entire career because you, you they didn't have a pre-draft report on you uh, coming in the 96 draft. You only, you pop up on, I believe, the 98 Royals top 10, and you're referred to as an obscure third-round pick. Your guy who's topping at 93, 94 in high school, that's that's fast. That's a lot faster in the 90s. Oh, that's, yeah, that would be 97, 98 now, yeah. Yeah, so you're on. You said you wanted to be a Chicago Cub. You didn't want to be an LSU Tiger. LSU, Skip Bergman still called. You commit to LSU. What is the... What what's the process there? And then what is spring of your senior year like? Or is your goal still I want to get drafted? Or has LSU suddenly become a priority for you? Well, and and, and I said I wanted to be a cub, but it was never like there was just this illogical thinking about it. Like I never thought about the draft. I knew I, I knew I was gonna go to three or four years of college. That was like there was no process that was gonna get me to Pro Ball. The draft just I just didn't think I was good enough. And maybe it was just, you know, that I never sat down with somebody who was willing to paint that picture a little clearer. I mean, it was black and white and maybe a little, you know, charcoal. I, I had no color to it. So, you know, the, the, the funny thing is my junior year, I started to get a lot more attention. And I think, you know, in talking to Skip Bertman later on, he was highly aware. Beetle Bailey was with a great name. Beetle Bailey was his uh, recruiter, his lead recruiter. Um, and I played 14 year old ball against his son. I actually broke his son's arm twice throwing O2 fastballs in, um, back to back years and thought, well, LSU's out. But what happened was my, my sophomore going to junior year, I started to hear, I mean, the letters were coming in, but none of them were like high. They were just a, you know, a letter that they probably printed. I mean, I guess I was smart enough to know better. It was just one that they printed out with another 50 that they sent out and they just hope they get a call back. There was nobody knocking on our door at the house. There's nobody, you know, going to our high school coach. Now we did have my high school coach that I spoke of earlier. He left after my sophomore year, and we had a new guy who was only 23 years old come in my junior year. And I don't think he was as aware of the entire ecosystem. So, and 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 here's what I know from talking to um, Jim Schwanke, who was uh, the recruiting coordinator after Beetle Bailey. They knew that nobody knew about me, and LSU wasn't going to go waving that flag everywhere. So they didn't really, like, I wasn't on their lists either because we might get this kid from in town who might start on Friday night for us that nobody has a clue about. So there's, back then you didn't have, like, like we have this constant feed of, of kids on, on, on Twitter or Instagram or, or God knows what or Baseball America or Perfect Game. You didn't have all that. So um, they knew they kind of had me, and I wanted to be a shortstop. I'll be honest, a shortstop in center field, and I could hit, I could run, I could do all those things. Pitching was kind of just something I did in the seventh inning of a game to shut people down. I jogged in from shortstop, and I threw 93 with a really good breaking ball, and I struck out two or three, and, and we shook hands, and it was over. 
So I, I wasn't the guy that they looked at like that. But man, when the, so I went to Alabama on a recruiting trip. I went to Northeast, which Smoke Laval was there. He was um, LSU Skip Berman's predecessor. Oh, not predecessor. He was uh, he was an assistant coach that was next in line if Skip left. Well, Skip was never leaving. He went up to Northeast Louisiana and Nichols State. I went down there on a trip. Um, and and they're both coaches kind of looked at me and like, you know, you're not coming here, right? <laughs> which was shocking to me. Uh, but they said, Skip already called and said, you're not going here, um, which is a funny conversation. But I went, Ben Sheets was on the same trip in the same room with me with Smoke Laval at Northeast. And he looked at me and said, nah. And then he looked at Ben and was like, you need to come here. This is where you can become a first rounder, which he did. But I went to Alabama on the other trip. I didn't go to LSU. Um, it was in my backyard. I knew what I needed to know. And I went to Alabama. Alabama offered me a hundred percent scholarship and they wanted me to play center field and come in and pitch in relief. Maybe, maybe start later on in my uh, college career. And I was in man, a hundred percent. My mom, we didn't have a whole lot of money. That was hard to wrap your brain around. So I came home and I kind of, we kind of let them know. And, uh, that was on, that was the weekend before the weekend I'm about to speak about. We kind of let LSU know. And on a Saturday we were playing a district game and a 10 a.m. game. And uh, Skip Bourbon came in full uniform and sat down in the first row, brought the WAFB and the WBRZ local um, you know, TV station vans with him. What a power move. I mean, power move. My third baseman, who's, you know, was a great guy, really bright. He looked at me and goes, you know, you have to go to LSU now, right? <laughs> You're the bad guy if you don't. And, and that was one of those moments where it was like, okay, this is for real. Um, you know, and I committed shortly thereafter to LSU. It was, if he doesn't do that, I go to Alabama. I don't even think, I don't think twice about it, but he, he kind of made him more of a hard pitch and said, if you want to be a pro, I think if you came here for three years and learned how to win, learned how to lead and got a lot of your college out of the way, your mom wants that for you. You can come here and get all that done and you'll be ready in, in three years. And, um, you know, part of me was still kind of, I don't know, curious about the Ben McDonald's and the Chad OJ's and the Paul birds, all those guys made it to the big leagues, but none of them were the same guy they could have been had they not been worn out. Um, and it's hard. I mean, you're, you're there to win. So, so pitch counts and everything was already on your radar. Cause that, that didn't really, I mean, even when I was, I'm, I'm a, you know, a little bit younger than you, even when I was coming up, that wasn't as big a thing of, you know, guys getting ridden. I mean, obviously, you know, you graduated, you know, years before that, that 2003 Rice team, which I think right now is the pinnacle of these guys got rode hard to win a national championship. So that was already on your radar then. It was. I, I you know, I, like I said, I watched a ton of baseball and I listened. I, I read, I, I read the books that people would pump out, um, you know, on the mental game, on the, on the, on the physical side. Um, I was just really curious and, and I guess bright enough to wrap my brain around it to some level. And I went out, I went out and we, we charted a game that Eddie Yarnell, who was uh, a left-handed pitcher who played in the big leagues, um, you know, came to LSU. He threw 81, 82 sliders out of like 110 pitches. And I was just back there cause I thought it was cool and, and we were going to chart it. Um, just something fun to do. And in watching and looking at that, it just like came, I couldn't, I couldn't buy into that being something I was going to do, uh, with my arm and my body if I wanted to have a long career. 
And so I guess somewhere in, in that period of time between being recruited on the college level and then making the decision on whether or not I was going to be an LSU Tiger or go in the draft, because then you started to get the calls. Oh, LSU signed him. Oh, he's healthy. Um, you know, because I had sprained an ankle my, my senior year in basketball and nobody showed up to my first couple baseball games and sprained ankle three, four weeks and you're, you're close. Um, but Skip and, and those guys, and this is just secondhand knowledge. He probably didn't say this, but um, they put it out there that I wasn't going to play all spring. You know, hey, it's broken. <laughs> He's not playing. Um, but in, in the first couple outings, they weren't going to be as, as you know, firm as later on. You know, so, you know, making that decision was tough. And, and you know, even as it ran up into the draft, I had a, gr- I had a very good senior year. Um, you know, we went on our, our senior trip down to Cancun, Mexico, and I was getting phone calls in the in the hotel room. Um, you know, which was funny. The Pirates and and uh, you know, if the Cubs would have called, I'd have probably told them whatever, just sign me. Um, but it was it was the Royals and and the Pirates and uh, the Mets were big, but the Mets wanted me to be a, a an infielder. They were big on me as an infielder, and you know, it kind of just played out. I came, you know, the draft happened on the day we came home. Um, I got off the plane in uh, in New Orleans with my entire senior class that did go to to Cancun that year, and and my dad was holding up three fingers. And I'll be honest with you, I hadn't slept in like forty eight hours because I was going to milk that trip for everything I had, um, and I, I didn't understand. And then finally got closer to him. He's like, "Hey, third round, buddy, the Royals," and uh, and I said, "Well, what does that mean?" <laughs> you know, I was like, you know, that I understand that's a slot, but not like a slot like we think of it now, but. Um, what do we do now? And he said, well, we'll get home. You'll, you can rest. Um, I'm sure they're going to want to talk to you. Um, and I was like, well, have they talked about like numbers or anything? Like, what does that mean? He's like, nope, I, not, not that I know of. You've got your, uh, a crawfish boil that we're going to do a couple days in because, you know, people expect you to, um, you know, either go pro or, or sign at LSU officially. Um, so we're kind of trying to run that, um, you know, down the line. So I got in the car with my, you know, the, the same best friend I told you about earlier. He's sitting on the right side. We were in my dad's Ford Ranger, and I just nodded off, you know, the whole ride. New Orleans, Baton Rouge is about an hour. And when I got home, it, you know, it kind of regained consciousness. And I was like, wait a second, we've got some decisions to make. And I can't remember if it was that day or the next day, but Dennis Woody, my, the scout that drafted me, he was, he was there and, and, you know, wanted to know what I was thinking. So you hadn't thrown out a number yet. They didn't know. Had you given them any indication of your willingness to sign? Because nowadays that that'd be unheard of, almost. Um, yeah, that, I had no idea what number was even realistic. Um, I knew I knew the first three rounds and maybe the fourth round would be above a hundred thousand, but I didn't know. We had spoken to every scout with college being paid for in our mind. Um, and that was kind of a favor to my mom. If I'm going to do this, you're going to have college to lean on later on. Um, so that was, uh, that part of it was 25,000, uh, 12 and a half, uh, 12,500 per semester, 25 a year. That was kind of the number. So a hundred thousand was going to get taken off the table. So, you know, what are they going to offer and, and how is this going to look? And yeah, I must've talked to, uh, the GM, I, like I said, it was all very blurry because I didn't know what the heck I, I was doing. I'd just gotten, gotten home. And shortly thereafter, Warren Morris, um, hit that 1996, uh, home run in the college world series. That's so famous off Robbie Morrison. 
um, and, and with Miami and Pat Burrell and Joey Core and all them on that team. Um, and it must, I mean, they must have still been rounding the bases when Skip called because he, he called and said, let me get home. I want to talk to you. And, and I remember saying, yes, sir. But I remember thinking, I'm not going to let him talk me out of this. I don't want to go to LSU. Um, not that I don't love LSU and, and that I don't think that it would be a great place to play, but I've got a chance to see if I'm good enough to go play at the pro level. And if I'm not, I can always go back and be an engineer or do whatever, go get my degree. But I'm, I'm going to chase this thing down and, and let's see what this is all about. And so we, we, we ended up with, um, 165,000 plus a hundred thousand, um, in, in school. So 265 total. And knowing what I know now, I would have gone ahead and played summer ball because I was just coming into full health, throwing 93, 94, almost every outing. Um, I would have gone and, and been able to play in, in a little bit of a travel circuit, not what it is today, but I'd been able to go out and play with uh, Ryan Terrio was on that team, a bunch of other guys. We were going to go and, uh, and showcase a little bit. And I would have been able to buy myself time, wrap my brain around everything. But at the time, I was so it wasn't confidence. I was just stubborn and I didn't want to do what everybody else was doing. I wanted to go against the grain. That's kind of the, the way that I'm built. And you know, from talking to O'Flaherty and those guys, a lot of the guys you talk to, we are against the grain guys. Um, not full born, <laughs> full bore, um, you know, crazy train, but we definitely don't want to be told uh, what we're going to do with ourselves. So we take in the information, we go ahead and make some, you know, some educated decisions from there. That's I ended up, uh, you know, signing with the Royals and and man, blink blink, I'm on a plane, um, you know, leaving to go to Fort Myers, Florida, which was where the rookie level GCL um, played and shared a complex with the, it was the Fort Myers Miracle uh, spring training site for the Minnesota Twins for so long. Um, that was where they shared a cloverleaf with the Twins GCL team. I had no idea this was how how that would go, but. That's, uh, you know, that was kind of the, the run from the, the, you know, the time I was moved down to Louisiana and played high school ball and, and, and ended up signing um, in the third round with the Royals. And, and I knew about the Royals. I was, you know, like I said, I watched so much baseball. I knew about Brett Saberhagen and I knew about um, George Brett and Steve Balboni. And I mean, I knew all those guys uh, from watching. So for me, it was like, man, that, the Royals though, like <laughs> that's an American League team. You know, do I want to be? You know, in the American League, well, I mean, I don't really have much of a choice, so here we go. And uh, and then I was in the GCL. So when you got on the plane to head to head out, head out to the GCL, what was your what was your expectation? Your scouting report on yourself? We don't have a, a BA one to provide any expectations for you. Were an obscure third round pick? Did you? Did you have any concept of, of pro ball or how, you know, what your timeline was? What did you expect of yourself? When did you think that you'd be in Kansas City? And it wasn't, what's funny, it should be on your radar, right? If you sign to play professional baseball. My education then was that there are six more levels to go to get there. You know, we've got the GCL, and then we've got rookie ball. And then we've got low A, mid A, high A, double A, triple A. Man, it's so far down the road that I don't know. I'm just going to focus on going and competing with these guys that are also professionals and see where see where I end up. Um, I had like these uh, you know illusions of grandeur that I was going to be in front of 7,500 people, minor league type deal, you know, Bull Durham type situation at, at best and worst. And it went from that to Cloverleaf. 
um, you know, four fields in, in, you know, and they're all attached and it's, you know, half, you know, Dominican, Puerto Rican, Venezuelan, Mexican kids and, and us, you know, kids that have been drafted this year and the last couple of years that are down there trying to get out of, um, Gulf coast league GCL. Lucky if you're playing in front of 7.5 people. Well, yeah, if your parents came, it was 10. Um, uh, but most of the time it was, you know, a couple kids doing a chart and a gun and another one down the, the line, um, recording, and you had it, you know, you just kind of went out and, you know, found your way. So there's about a two week span where that you onboarded, you know, you showed up every day at like 7 a.m. And, you know, we had, uh, you know, uh, Steve Crawford was our pitching guy. Al Padrique was our, um, our manager in the GCL. And uh, Danny Tartable's dad, Jose Tartable, was our, our kind of our hitting guy and our field coordinator. I mean, you're not really coordinate a whole lot of writing an itinerary, but they were great to be around. All three had done some things in baseball in their playing career. So it was, it was a really good group. You, you know, I learned a ton of, I took French in high school, which knowing what you know now, I mean, Spanish would have been a really good thing to take, but you go down there and it, that ecosystem, that whole thing is so different than you're expecting. So you start to go to work and I, I was fast. Uh, I was a six, five, six, six, 60 guy. So, and I love to run basketball. Um, so all the guys down there that were miserable went to spring training and waited the two months before the draft, thought they might get to go to, you know, rookie ball in, in the Northwest league. They're stuck there. And then they've got this 155, 160-pound, 18-year-old kid that is just excited to run a sprint out there outworking them. And you, you go through this, these steps in the process of learning – that there are other guys where this this is still their dream, but they're in the middle of a nightmare, you know, uh, encap- encapsulated in a dream. And, you know, those guys, you know, I'm fighting against them every day. I want to pitch better than you. I want to run faster than you. I want to lift harder than you. I want to be the first guy there and the last guy to leave. That, that competitor in me was just going to outdo people. Um, and I didn't even know, you know, nobody told me, nobody mentored me on that stuff. It was just, man, who's the first person there? When's the first bus? How else can I get there? Um, and, and you just figure it out and you're, you're living in an apartment complex with three other guys. Um, the guys I was there with were Corey Thurman. Uh, he was a fourth round pick that year. He ended up playing with the Toronto Blue Jays for, for a while in the big leagues. Um, and, and two other guys from Texas, a catcher and a, and a left-handed pitcher. Um, but we were in the room together and it was a four, four bedroom apartment and they took the money out of your paycheck. I remember getting like 160 bucks every two weeks, um, to actually take home after they took out everything else. Um, but I wasn't thinking anything about it. I also, you don't receive that signing bonus until much, much later and you get it in halves. So I didn't have any money. Um, the, the thing that was costing me the most was, uh, like the sprint card. You didn't have cell phones. Uh, only rich people had them back then. So you had a sprint you know, uh, yeah, I guess 16 digit, you know, card that you dialed in and you made your phone calls to, um, you know, uh, girlfriends or, you know, guys you played with your mom, your dad, whomever. And, and it was just a really weird situation because those guys, two of them were high school draftees. They were figuring it out as they were going and you're, you're just, you know, go figure it out, go do what you have to do. And the, the, the saving grace in that whole situation was going to the field. Like I just, that was as close to normal as I could get. I knew what my itinerary was there. So you go through your entire Gulf coast league 
And I, I think I threw a, a one hitter or a no hitter at some point during that stretch. The numbers aren't great. I think I ended up with like a four one or a four two in the GCL, but I pitched really well. I had some some games where, you know, who knows whether they called them errors or, or whatever. There were plays that I would have made if I were playing shortstop. But um, and that's just my opinion of it. But that's that was kind of you're wrapping your brain around everything. This is the way professional ball. This is how you act. This is what you do. Well, you mentioned the stats. That's something I want to ask you about. The the stats, if you look at, you know, an 18-year-old getting 44 innings in the GCL, you had a you had a 4-2-6 ERA. Like, in retrospect, everything looks good, good, you know, strikeout-walk ratio. Like, that looks fine. But in terms of you had just been in a Louisiana high school a couple months before, like, you gave up three home runs in the GCL. Had you given up three home runs in your entire life before then? What was it like... It, just getting on the mound with people with comparable talent, facing people with comparable talent. Was there any struggle in suddenly going from I can blow it by anyone to I actually have to pitch? Well, that was the the, the trick in my mind. You play tricks with yourself was I'm facing because Baton Rouge had some talent. Yeah, you know, we had a bunch of guys that ended up playing in the big leagues during that stretch of time between 94 and 98. So there were guys I faced on a regular basis that were as good as a lot of these guys, but it wasn't in that setting and it wasn't one after another, after another, you know, it was the two, three, four hole of some high school, you know, that, that, that had some pretty good talent. So you go down there and you're facing just grown men. They look, they looked so much more filled out and, and they probably were, you know, a tick older. They just had big league, you know, tight bodies. And yeah, I, I don't remember. I gave up two home runs, both on changeups in high school. Um, my senior year, I don't remember ever giving, I gave up one home run on a fastball my sophomore year. Um, and the guy hit it probably 440 feet. There was a no doubter. And I, I went black after that. And I, apparently I struck out like five or six guys after that. I don't remember. All I remember is the home run being hit. The very first one just absolutely crushed off me. So I didn't have that moment though in pro ball. It was kind of like, yeah, I mean, you're supposed to give up some home runs. The biggest thing to me was hearing like Steve Stone's voice in, in my head is, oh, man, you're going to give up home runs. Now it's a matter of how do you react to that? And so I had announcers in my head, you know, making it up. You know, I need to act like, you know, like it didn't happen. Like I almost punched that guy out or it was just a fly ball. Get the ball back and let's let's fire a ball um, for a strike and see. Even if this guy hits one out, at least you threw another strike. And if the next guy hits one out, at least you threw another strike. So I had that mentality where I wasn't trying to crawl under the rosin bag or anything. I was going to, I was going to figure out how to compete and you're going to give up home runs. Um, I wish I remembered it better. I, can, I don't remember giving up any home runs in, in the GCL. Um, a lot of that league is pure survival mode, barrier to entry, figuring out who can handle it, who can't. Um, but what I, I, I used to get confused until I wrote it down after I, I retired. I used to get the GCL and instructional league uh, confused. I don't feel like my minor league baseball career started until the end of the GCL is in line with the end of the minor league baseball season. So September 1, August 30, you know, 30th, 31st, whatever, you're out. Um, you go home, and the instructional league starts like September 15th. So I got like two weeks to go home. And, and back then it started the 15th, and it ended um, you know, right at the beginning of October. So... I went home and when I came back, I, I had gotten a, 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 my, my bonus check, my first one. Um, I bought a truck for, for $28,000 and I know I was going to have that. I wanted that truck, 
you know, when I was in high school, was never going to be able to afford it. Well, I went and got it. I knew I was going to drive all over the country. It was a, a an Indigo Blue Chevy Z71. And I got to drive my own truck, which I didn't have my own vehicle while I was down in, in GCL. So I get to drive my own truck down there. And I meet all of the, most of the draftees and the next couple years of prospects. And now it feels like baseball. These guys are all very similar minded there. They have good senses of humor about this whole thing. And I mean, it was Carlos Beltran, um, you know, Jason Simontachu pitching the big leagues, you know, one of my life, you know, long friends now, Jake Chapman, who was a left-handed reliever out of Rensselaer, Indiana. But I met guys that we were all thinking differently. Um, you know, we, we wanted to be, we wanted to get to those next levels. And so, you know, I remember that being kind of the, you know, the first time that I was ever around guys that were all pushing in the same direction and, and had a blast. I, you know, got to face because we shared that complex, same place with the, the twins. Well, Jock Jones, Torrey Hunter, all those guys were on the other side of the instructional league. And you're down there to work. You're down there to work on a secondary pitch. You're down there to work on command. Um, and I remember having an outing where I struck out like seven of nine players on change-ups. And I had been working on it really hard. It was always good for me. But like I said, I, the ones I threw in high school were running right into guys' bats. So now you face guys that can hit 94 and 78, 79, it plays. So I, that was like, okay, I'm here. I, I can compete with these guys. I looked at their stats on God knows Baseball America or something like that. I was like, man, those, those guys are going to be in the big leagues in a couple of years. And I just competed with them. So it kind of it, it lifted me up. Uh, it was the first year that I ever lifted uh, consistently hard. I really didn't lift during the GCL. It was almost like a maintenance thing. They didn't want to hurt anybody. Um, in the fall, I started to lift, and I lifted really hard that offseason. And then, you know, going into 1997 was I was ready for spring training. I knew what it was like in my mind to be a pro. Um, I was just hoping not to go back to that hole of GCL. And I, I lucked out and made the Lansing Lugnuts team at, at 19 years old. And that was in the Midwest League. Um, and I was, about, I was about as excited as I could possibly be getting in my truck and rode up with Jason Simontachi, the guy that I spoke about. We rode up to Lansing, Michigan. And, you know, at that time, late March, early April, it's still cold in Michigan. <laughs> but I'm from the Midwest, so I'm like, yes, snow on the ground, we can still play. We're, we're good. Um, so that that part of the whole, you know, GCL meets instructionally. And then the first time you go, Lansing, Michigan used to get like 8,000 people a game. So it was what I was dreaming about, uh, you know, a year before that. And, you know, my pitching coach there was Mike Mason who was a left-handed guy uh, that pitched in the big leagues. He was probably 44, 45, not that far removed from having retired. And I, I would, I'd throw my pen. He had great feedback. Um, our manager was fantastic. Curtis Wilkerson, who was a former Cub, was our, um, our first base coach. And it just, it was everything I dreamed about. And I was in the Midwest, so I had some familiarity to the area. Um, I wasn't great. I, you know, all I was really worried about that first year was, can I sit at like 92 to 94? Can I, can I get into that range? And I couldn't, um, you start pitching every five days and you can't top out like you may have when you were younger. So I had to learn the workload. I had to, you know, learn to throw the ball over the plate, had multiple times where my pitching coach was like, Hey, we're going to take away both your secondary pitches. Let's, let's prove to yourself that these guys can't hit your fastball. And I had one game where I threw 95 fastballs in a game. 
and didn't I didn't throw any any off speed whatsoever and had a decent game. I probably threw six or seven innings and and gave up a couple runs. Um, but what I remember most about that year was my bullpen sessions. Like I, I I put in a ton of work in the bullpen, but I had the balls to ask the other starters and my pitching coach if I could sit in on their bullpens and just listen. I don't want I'm not going to say a word you know, if you'll allow me to do it. And I just sat in because it, to me, it was extra reps. You know, can I, can I hear something that maybe I can apply to, you know, throwing the next day? Um, and, and the guys were, you know, all about it. They're all 22, 23, 24, 25 years old. And a lot of the guys either on my team or in that league were guys I saw play at LSU and I'm, I'm not dominating them, but I'm beating them with my fastball and I have better off speed than they can, they can hit for the most part. And these weren't the guys that ended up in the big leagues. These were, you know, the guys that, that fizzled out at, at high A ball and double A, but it was a, a huge confidence year. And, you know, if you look at those stats, they're not great either, but that's a 19 year old competing against, you know, some guys with some more tenure. And what I remember most about like that, that league where they have the, the long bus rides, which I was looking forward to after being in the GCL, a lot of these guys weren't looking forward to them. Had to ask about the bus ride stories because that's the, you know, that's the minor league trope. You're in that, you know, you're not only are you learning how to be a professional with with everything you're doing on the field, but you're learning how to live on your own and you're doing it in this weird environment where you're traveling all over the Midwest. You know, what was fun about the bus rides is there there were, you know, just VHS tapes (laughs) really for the buses because they didn't have CD players on the buses or DVD excuse me, DVD players. They just had an old VHS player and you just hoped it worked. And a lot of times it didn't. And you just had to go revert back to card games or, um, or reading your book or, or listening to your, you know, your Walkman or whatever. Uh, so I am get, I, I am old, but, um, you know, just saying that kind of made me laugh at myself. But, uh, what I remember a lot is like just the, the, the movies that we all quoted, um, you know, Major League, which came out in 1989, uh, this week, actually, um, when we're recording this, uh, the week, first week of April, which makes sense with baseball typically starting. Um, but it came out in 1989. So you, you caught a, a you know, VHS tape of Major League or Bull Durham or Ace Ventura or whatever. And, and you put those on and got everybody laughing and you got everybody quoting it later on in the, in the week. Um, I remember, you know, somebody telling our, our manager that a subway would be open in, in rural Illinois or Iowa and you pull up and there's nothing. Um, you know, it's closed. And so is a convenience store and you're just going to have to go hungry. Um, you know, peanut butter, um, and, and jelly sandwiches are, are where it's at. And, uh, you, you just, you're, you're, everybody's, it's not like you're, you're feeling like it's, you know, you're not, woe is me. You're not down on yourself. It's like, Hey man, we're all in this together. Did you ever have a moment sitting on the bus where you're like, I, I wonder what they're doing in Baton Rouge right now? I wonder what that would have been like at LSU? Or was it, I signed, I'm full speed ahead, I'm not worried about the opportunity I passed up? No, you know what? I never, blinders. I don't think I thought about it at any length, at any significant length, until I until probably 06, 07, 08. Um, until I made it again, I got back to the big leagues after an arm surgery and stuff. So that never really occurred. I had a lot of really good friends that were at LSU and they were playing. And so for me, that was their time. That was a completely different world. And, um, 
you know, guys that I worked out with in the offseason. Like, they were LSU Tigers to me until they weren't. And, you know, Kurt Ainsworth was same grade as me, 96, you know, uh, I was about to say draft, 90, 96 class. And he, he pitched for a, a year and a half at LSU. He blew out um, in summer ball, um, the same year, Lansing Lugnut, year 97. And he was 5'11", and he grew four, four and a half, five inches during his rehabilitation. And he ended up coming back in 99, 98, 99, and he's, you know, 93 to 96, and he's six foot four and a half and ended up getting drafted in the first round. So those those are the guys. I was pulling for those guys and not thinking at all about what it would have been like, uh, which is odd. I, sh- I probably should have, but I, I've always had this ability to black box good and bad and, and just focus on the now. And um, I actually one of the things that, you know, if, hopefully we get around to it is, um, in 2000, I struggled, I had a really rough time. And my dad bought a book by Phil Jackson called, um, sacred hoops. And it was really about the art of, um, weaving in some Zen Buddhism type of uh, approaches, not necessarily the faith of it, but just the, the mental approach of being in the now. And this is who you are right now. This isn't who you're going to be. This isn't who you were. Um, and he had, uh, he had figured out ways to get, uh, Michael Jordan to listen to him because of that stuff. Um, and so I'm listening, man, Michael Jordan. Okay. I hear you, Phil Jackson. I hear you. Um, so anyway, I really had the ability all all those years to black box a pretty well and you get good at it. I'll be honest. If I had a bad outing, man, I, I, I I couldn't sulk because the guys were older. Um, so you you got on a bus for 10 hours and eventually somebody is going to come sit next to you and be like, Hey man, you're all right. And your reaction to that is being watched, whether you think so or not. You've got six, seven other guys that are like, let's see if this kid's going to blow up because I'm going to push his buttons. Um, and you just kind of sit there and it's over with, you know, we'll get them next time. Or, you know, if you had a really good outing, they want to see if you're going to peacock around a little bit. Um, you know, and I have great, great teammates, that Lansing team. Um, Pat Hallmark was uh, our catcher slash center fielder. He was a rice guy. He's a, he's a coach at, uh, Oh, it's, it's, you know, it, it's in Texas. He was at Rice for a while. He went to our Incarnate Word, and then now he's coaching at a different school in Texas. But, man, he told me, I swear, 19, 20 years old, Chad, when you have kids later on and I'm coaching college baseball, I want your kids to come play for me. And and I remember that vividly. And he was at every level. He was at A-ball. He was at, you know, both A-ball stops and at double-A. And yeah, I think he ended up playing triple-A ball for four or five years and then going back to Rice and coaching there. Um, but he was one of those guys that always, you know, kind of, hey, man, how you doing? And he, but he was tough-nosed. I'm talking really tough-nosed. So he, you know, we, I had a moment. This is a this is one of those stories that it's, it's almost like, a, you know, a Bull Durham-type flashback story. Um, 1997 is probably early May. It's my dad's first game that he makes it to. And we're facing the Tigers, um, you know, team, and they had a guy named uh, Brian Debose, big, six foot four, six foot five, um, black guy that just you know grunted when he swung and all this stuff. And he had a home run off me in the first inning, could have been the second, and it hit the, I mean, it hit like three quarters of the way up the center field scoreboard. He hit it so far, but when I turned around and Pat Hallmark, the reason I'm saying that Pat Hallmark was catching. When I turned around, you know, the guy was still in the box. He was there on a rehab assignment and you know, shouldn't have been in low A ball. And I screamed at him. You know, I mean, run, dummy. You know, just like that, I don't remember what I said, but Pat Hallmark said vividly, I just remember you barking at this guy that was going to eat you alive 
all the way around the bases. Then you got eight up, eight down, didn't tell anybody. And I hit him with 94 in the ribs and he threw the bat at me and came out after me. Um, and that was my dad's first game. But all I, I do remember this. Their team didn't live the, leave the dugout. Robert Fick was on that team. Um, uh, Eric DeBose, who pitched at Mississippi State, was a first-rounder. They had a bunch of guys, and none of them, none of them even left the, uh, the stinking dugout. So he must not have been liked very much. How would you fare in the fight? So he, he went high, I went low. Um, I spun him and, and put him into the ground, and then my pitching coach grabbed me and pulled me off. And I, At the time, we had uh, Jeremy Giambi and Kit Pello were on the corners. Um, Tony Miranda uh, you know, who played at Cal state Fullerton, he ran in for me. He was already running from what I understand as I let go of the ball <laughs> coming into this kid's about to get eaten alive. So, um, and Pat Hallmark said, you should have let me know that you were going to do it. I would have tried to trip him up or something because he had a clean lane at you. Um, but apparently at the, in that game, we had the, the, you know, the big boys, we had the minor league coordinator, we had, you know, the, the, we had, we had all the, the brass was there and they, I wasn't on there. I was on their radar, but I wasn't on the radar. That's why I wasn't a top 10 prospect in 1997. And they were just like, man, the balls on this kid, you gotta be kidding me. He didn't take, he didn't take on the next guy. He waited, he got eight up, eight down and then went after the big six, five guy. And, and I guess to me, it was just all the years of watching baseball. If a guy did something like that, I'm not going to punish the next hitter. I'm going to punish him, right or wrong. Today, you know, and I'm, I'm sure I would get an interview today and still say what I would have said back then, which I didn't get interviewed after it, surprisingly. Um, or I might have, and it's just blurry memory. Uh, I just, I was going to take it in, you know, the vigilant justice of baseball. If you want to show me up, it's going to be my turn in a minute. And not striking you out and pumping a fist. No, I'm going to drill you. Um, and, and apparently all those old school guys that were sitting in the stands are like, who's this kid again? <laughs> what, what just happened? Um, and I ended up staying in the game. Uh, I have no clue what the rest of the outing was like, but that was the moment from the organization standpoint that put me on the map. Well, it sounds like 97, just in that season in general, that season with Lansing was your learning process. It was how to be a professional pitcher. And that's going out every five days, handling that physically, you know, dealing with teammates, dealing with bus rides, et cetera, et cetera. The next two years, you know, you'd mentioned your, your stats in, in Lansing weren't, weren't great or weren't, you know, they, they weren't exemplary. Your next year, you put up a two nine three in the Carolina league. You're 20. The year after that, you put up a good year in Wichita throwing 157 innings and you end with a September call up. What is after you learn how to be a professional, what kind of adjustments are made over those next two years that lead you to become a big leaguer? So, and, and I was, you know, getting long winded on, on the Lansing side, there's a lot of memory there, but, and you're exactly right. That was kind of the, 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 the laying of the foundation and Wilmington was fantastic. Like, you know, I could not have had a better team. It was the same group of guys. We, we won the, the league title in the Midwest League in 97. We won it in Carolina League in 98. And we actually won the whole thing in Wichita also. Do you think winning helps development in the minor leagues? Because obviously it's not the first first and foremost. You know, the big league clubs aren't that concerned with their minor league team winning the Carolina League title as they are the players getting better. Do you think being in that winning culture it helps development is why the Royals produced some great big leaguers in that time. You know what? I really, I really feel that 
if you're not winning at the big league level, that winning on the minor league level holds a much higher level of importance in looking back. And if you're winning at the big league level, the minor leagues is purely about helping the team at the big leagues win. You know, who can help us now? Who can come up the chain in the next two, three years inside of our window? Um, so I do think that there's a level of emphasis on winning. Um, and, and we had it. We wanted to win, you know, so we'd get noticed. And and I really feel like winning does matter. It's not everything. You can be on a bad team and, and, and you really get to see who's going to stand out also. But Wichita... So you know, what, what's funny is we didn't even belong in the playoffs last day of the year in, in, in Lansing. Um, we packed up our trucks. Like six teams had to lose, two teams had to win, and we had to win to get in the playoffs. Well, we got in, ended up winning it. And, you know, the last thing about 97, we played the Kane County Cougars for the title. And we won. We beat them in, in, in game five. And our mascots got in a fight. And, you know, so you had the Kane County Cougar and the Lansing Lugnut, which was like a a Disney type, um, you know, dragon looking character and they were fighting, but they're perpetually happy. Like, you know, they're a mascot. So the GM ends up banging, you know, any kind of post celebration and, you know, we had fun anyway, we drove home and then we showed, you know, we left. So in, in 1999 in Wichita, it was my first year living by myself. I had lived with host families in 97 and 98. Um, and I made that choice because I didn't think it was right at nine at 19 and 20 years old to be in college towns and on my own. I just didn't think, I mean, a lot of college kids do it, but man, if they had host families, maybe they'd make less mistakes. Wichita was a, a more of a professional. I had to, I had to beg my scout. He came to Baton Rouge in between 97 and 98 and said, I think they're going to send you back to Wilmington. And to be honest, and, and for lack of better words, what the hell for? And I said, what the F for? I said, what the hell for? What do I have to prove in the Carolina League that I didn't already prove to you? He said, well, we have, you know, Jeff Austin, who's a first rounder. We've got Chris George. We've got, you know, all these guys that we're piling in. We'd like all of you to play together. I said, well, I've earned the right not to have to be there. So you tell them I'm ready. And if I suck, you can send me back down. Give me a month. Well, and I wasn't great early, but what I had at, at, in double A was about two and a half, three months in the year, my manager, John Miserock, and the same pitching coach, Mike Mason, they took away my four-seam fastball and my changeup and and never allowed me to throw curveballs because they called the pitches at the time. So I, all three of my weapons were gone. They wanted me to hone another off-speed pitch in, in a slider, and I didn't I just couldn't throw one. I just it was like a mental block. And a sinker, and I didn't throw a sinker. I had no idea how to you know grip and rip a, a sinker at the time. So I, I was throwing 87, 88 sinkers and poo sliders and I was getting torn to pieces and about four or five weeks into that experiment um, I finally see a curveball go down Paul Phillips who went to Alabama played a little bit in the big leagues he puts down a two and I looked like I looked at him like a dog when you drop food but it doesn't hit the floor turns your head like are you did you get your fingers wrong and he threw down the curveball I threw one of the nastiest ones I've ever thrown in my life and I went the rest of the year from that point on they let me have all my pitches back and I went the rest of the year and went like 38 innings, gave up maybe one or two runs. I mean, I just, that's why I called up at the end of that year with so-so numbers. But if you took my numbers from, I don't know, the, the beginning of July, mid-July through the end of the year, I was as good as you could get. And carried that right into, I got called up, um, and, and I think it's a good time to tra- you transition. They wanted me to go to the Arizona Fall League, 
which was you know obviously a huge prestigious honor. So they asked me to go there. We end up winning the title, and because we'd won it three years in a row, and everybody was on the road. I think we were in Tulsa playing them. Um, we nobody drank. They were like, no, we don't need beer. We're just gonna get in our cars and go home. We win every year. Um, so we we I hightailed it back to Baton Rouge because I knew I had a small window, um, and I was I was home for maybe two three days, and I had um, the the. The guy that was going to make that phone call, his name was Muzzy Jackson, assistant GM. I had a, a missed call from Muzzy Jackson. I just got back with my buddies from from Chili's. I you know literally just gotten home, and the mom, best friend's mom. Yeah, it's I guess they you know Kevin Greer is my best friend, and his parents were always um, you know part of the equation because my family ended up moving back up north after high school was over. So I came home and and Muzzy Jackson, hey Muzzy Jackson, guy named Muzzy called. So I call him up and I thought he was just checking in. Kyle, I thought he was checking in on, you know, Arizona Fall League stuff. So he's like, hey, you know, congrats on on the, the title in double A. Um, you know, we were wondering if, uh, you know, if you could throw in a couple days. You know, have you been throwing? Have you been running? I was like, well, we just got back. Of course, yeah, I, mean, I plan on throwing a bullpen tomorrow. And he said, okay, good. Well, the, the team the team needs you in Detroit. And I, I didn't know the big league team was in Detroit. Um, playing on the road, I had no idea what he was talking about. I just, why do you, why would I need to go to Detroit? And he's like, uh, the big league team needs you to come join them for the rest of September. We've had some guys, um, get injured and your, your, your minor league season lasted long. So on, that was on September 26th. So there's not much left of the season. And I, I hightail it, you know, to the airport the next day and, you know, go to Detroit to old Tiger stadium. So one of these, you know, ballpark was not nice um for anybody that wants to google it i mean it was 100 years old and kind of like a a burnt a burned down uh beat up fenway or or wrigley but it to me it was you know just a cathedral and the guys told me to make sure i pissed in the urinal that you know babe ruth and mickey mantle pissed in and i i was nervous and stood there for probably 20 minutes but i got it out um so i did and I was a reliever. I went up there, I, not to start, I went out there to leave. I had no idea what I was doing. I remember how nervous I was even playing catch. And I played catch with Tim Burdak when I got up there. Um, and I played with him in the minor leagues uh, also, so I was familiar. And I, I got in a game a couple days later. Uh, the second to last game ever there, I got in a game. And the first batter I faced was uh, Luis Polonia. And I had played with or against him in like RBI baseball. <laughs> Nintendo back in the day and I thought it was the most surreal moment um, of my entire life uh, you know I ended up striking him out and I, I pitched two and a third I gave up a hit and uh, punched out three and walked the guy which I was more mad about the walk than anything but you know apparently I had pretty decent command that day and um, you know after the game you know they were like hey you know you're going to start the last game of the year and I was you know I mean just elated as, as excited as I could possibly be. And, um, you know, those next couple of days, the last game ever goes on at Tiger Stadium and um, flash bulbs and, you know, just a really cool experience. We go back to Kansas City and we're playing, um, we played the Indians and then we were going to play, it was like two, three game series and I was going to get six days in between. And uh, we ended up getting rained out the last day of the year. And I had to be the only disappointed person in the whole stadium. Um, both sides. Uh, I, I just remember thinking, what what an opportunity to get to start a game um, in the big leagues, and it was against the Indians that year, and they were a juggernaut. So I'm probably probably helped me out not to face them. Um, but um, so I went straight from there. Um, I can't remember. Yeah, I had to go to Baton Rouge pick up my bags, and then I, yeah, because I drove the whole way. I drove 
the entire 22 hours. I was so jacked up and excited for uh, the fall league. And I went out to the fall league and, you know, that's a different experience altogether, but what, you know, another great opportunity. I'd never been part of those perfect game deals. Like these kids, the fall league's just another echo of their 16, 17, 18, 19 year old years. You know, um, back then it was like, man, Pat Burrell's here. And, uh, you know, like all these guys you've been watching and you're going to go face them. And I ended up, I got lucky in my first outing and had like two or three unearned runs. And then I just, I pitched better than I pitched just as well as I did the entire time that I was in that 38 inning stretch. And in the big leagues, when I threw that one time, it just continued right through the fall. I was, I was as good as I've ever been in my career, um, for about a three or four month stretch. It was as good as it gets. So at that point, at that point, you've made it to the show within three years of getting drafted. It would have been a junior <laughs> at LSU. Yeah. yeah, you're heading into your age 22 season. What are your career expectations at that point? Not the incoming year, but what you know, it, uh, being a big leaguer at 21 years old. What is what do you think your next 10 years look like, or are you even thinking about what your next 10 years look like? Well, at 22, going to spring training, and and, and in spring training, I I, I beat. Pedro and Clemens and all those guys out for best numbers in spring. Like I was on fire for, for that stretch. My expectations wobbled between when's the other foot going to hit? Cause I'm not this good. And how long can I get? I mean, how much better can I get? How much stronger can I get? How can I make sure that I'm capable of throwing 200 innings a year? Like I remember that being like this huge focus for me in training. And I had one of the, you know, one of the guys that, that Tim Maxey was our strength conditioning guy there. And then again, in, in Cleveland, he was actually the big league strength conditioning coordinator when that position opened up and they created it for him. He was so good at, you know, communicating what I needed to do to, to take on that level of baseball. And just, and, you know, that was my only focus. And in, in 2000, the, the focus was just workload you know, go be good enough. And, and I, my first outing was good. I mean, I remember the mindset was get, get 200 innings a couple years in a row and you're going to have a job for the next 10 years. I remember that was my thought process. And I, my first outing, I, I went six, gave up one hit, uh, a solo home run to Darren Fletcher against Toronto. And then my next outing, I pitched really well against either Baltimore or the Yankees. And then like my fourth outing, I, I ended up giving up nine runs in like an inning and two thirds to uh, the Cleveland Indians. And I, but right before that outing, like, again, I'd been on this hot stretch and Brent Strom, who is, I consider him a good friend now. And, and he's done great things for baseball. Um, that was early on while he was still kind of tinkering around with his pat. He was passionate about it. There was never a time where you thought Brent was trying to derail you. He was trying to make you better. Well, I had been on this stretch, and he was a new pitching coach in 2000. Um, he'd been, he, I was on this stretch where, I, don't mess with me. Like the, the last, I, I remember asking Kurt Young, who's been a big league pitching coach for years in the fall league, I said, hey, you keep talking to all these other guys about things to work on and all that stuff. Like, why aren't you talking to me? He goes, what am I going to tell you right now? You're not going to listen. You, you're, you're in the best stretch you, you, you've ever had, and you're lighting these guys up. I mean, I, impress yourself was exactly what he said. And I remember – not being able to take that information in the right way. I thought he was being an, an um, which he's not. He's fantastic. But I get it. I got it over the next couple of years. Like, you're your own worst critic and best critic. You're going to be the most honest. Could could you get better? 
it was a great outing, but you missed on five or six pitches. You didn't hold a runner as well as you should. So I remember thinking that and, and kind of, you know, Brent Strom said, and we sat down, we watched more video than I ever watched. He was trying to, to fix some mechanical things that he didn't like that now with all this driveline stuff and all this Rapsodo stuff and, and all the, you know, the, the slow motion camera caps and, and all the science behind it, my mechanics were pretty darn good, um, oddly enough. But to him at the time, it wasn't quite, didn't fit quite in his box. So we were playing around with all these different things because I wanted to be great, of course. And I'm not going to tell a big league pitching coach no, but we we butted heads. So I, I ended up giving up. I had two bad outings in a row trying to do what he was trying to get me to do in the middle of pitching against big leaguers. So I get sent down to um, AAA, Omaha, and I get on the phone with Mike Mason. Again, he was the pitching coordinator now. And he said flat out, he said, whatever you're doing before Brent got in your head, go back to doing it and I'll go to bat for you. So I go, I go my next like four outings. I just absolutely shove in AAA. Was there any bitterness in getting sent down when you when you got sent back down to AAA? Actually, your first time going to AAA. Was there any? Hey, I belong in the big leagues. Why why am I getting sent down? Or did you think you needed kind of a, a, a short reset? Well, black box. I, it was where I was at the time. Like I, I, I yes. I'm down here. Well, I'll work on the things. Well, but I trusted Mike Mason. I didn't quite trust Brent Strom, right? So for me, I was like, you know, do I come down here and do I work on the things Brent wants me to work on? Because I didn't like it. Didn't feel good, and I was pitching extremely well. That Yankees team in 2000 that I threw seven and I threw seven and two thirds and gave up three runs. But I gave up. I threw ten straight balls to start the game. Yeah, you know, I walked Knobloch. I walked Jeter. And I went 2-0 on Paul O'Neill, and he hit into a double play on the 2-0 pitch. And then Bernie flew out. So I gave up some runs, but that team was outstanding. I remember Joe Torre telling me afterwards, like, that in Yankee Stadium almost never happens. A 22-year-old doesn't come in and throw 10 straight balls to start a game and get out of it. Like, they usually just they just go into the dugout and back down to AAA. So I was, like... I, I was in the right frame of mind, so, you know, fast forward to it. I wasn't bitter about going down. I didn't want to get embarrassed another outing. Like, gave up five and, and one-third of an inning to the A's after giving up nine and one and two-thirds. I deserve to go down. You can't let that kid keep getting his teeth beat in. You go six and give up six, that's different. You go one or one and, and two-thirds and give up that hit, you need to go. Um, so I went down, and I did. I concentrated. I lifted just as hard. I ran just as hard. Uh, you know, I tried to, you know, really get, you know, woven into the, the fabric there and did, did really well and got called back up. And I had some really good, I had a really good stretch. Um, you know, I, I won two, two months in a row. I won like the, um, or one month, I, I won the pitcher of the month award for him. And then I just ran into Brent continuing to manipulate some of the things I was doing. And at the end of the year, I went down to Omaha one more time. I didn't come back up. They didn't call me up in September. I remember that was that shook me, um, and I was like, okay, what the hell do I need to do then? Um, and I talked to. There was like an exit meeting with our AAA manager, and he's like, just just go home and take a breath, because you're 22 years old, and if you really think about what you've done already, it's pretty impressive. Just go take a breath, and uh, and and I didn't. I went home and I went straight to lifting and running. And throwing, and I wanted to be, you know, as good as anybody. I went into spring um, in 01 and and probably earned the spot. I earned the fifth spot, um, but they already had Max Suzuki, was this six six Asian guy that had really good stuff. They had 
they had some guys that were going to do really well, and um, or they thought were. And I went back down to AAA, and it was it was probably the best thing for me. I went down there and I dominated AAA baseball in in my own mind. I just I never felt like anybody that was up was you know going to do any damage. Um, you know, ended up getting called back up after a month, and my numbers in that short stretch in AAA and in 01 were really impressive. I remember facing Oswalt and, uh, you know, he and I went, we went on a tear. I think he struck out 13. I struck out 12 and, um, you know, kind of almost, you don't, neither one of us belonged in AAA anymore. You could just, it was just easy to see. And so got called back up and had a pretty good year. I mean, all things considered, um, having a four, seven, um, and, uh, I think I, I won nine games, probably should have won closer to 14 or 15. Um, had a bunch of seven and eight ending outings that, um, probably should have got wins in. Um, but I didn't, but I really, that team was good. Johnny Damon was in left field, Beltron in center, Jermaine Dye in right, Mike Sweeney at first. Um, we had, you know, we had, we had some talent and that was kind of their window. It was oh one oh two maybe oh three, And, um, you know, the end of that year, I was, you know, 9-11 happened. Um, you kind of reshuffled the deck. Things were kind of like where we're at right now with uh, the pandemic and all that. You you weren't quite as concerned about your status as a big league player. You went home and it was like, okay, you know, life isn't quite just baseball. And I went home and I, you know, I actually met my wife in that, that off season. planned on traveling the world and didn't. Um, you know, I was excited about going to Australia and going to Italy and doing all kinds of stuff. And I stayed home because of 9-11 and, uh, came back in 02. I was as, as I've worked just as hard in that off season as I ever have. My stuff was as good or better. And going into 02, did you feel like an established big leaguer? You had thrown a majority of your season, the, the 01 season, you ended, you crossed 200 innings for the first time, your goal combined between, um, AAA in the big leagues, you had obviously you threw 179 in the big leagues. So majority of your time in the big leagues, did you feel there to stay at that point? I did, um, and and they had kind of earmarked me as the as the two. Um, I wasn't going to be the the three or the four or the five. I was going to be the two, um, and I had kind of earned it um, with the consistency the year before, because um, there were outings where, you know that the ERA didn't match that season. The ERA didn't match quite what I'd done. So in 02, I went in and, and my focus was, you know, how do I, cause you know, I had uh, Jason Grimsley and Beltron and, and those guys coming up and saying, you're going to have to be Jeff Supon's going to be our one. And he's not a one. Um, but he is a solid three, four eat up 200 innings, did it for his whole career. You're going to have to be a guy that when Jeff loses against another one, that you stop that losing streak. So they wanted me to be the stopper. And, and I remember, and I had my arm, I had a little bit of a tinge of, of pain in, in my, um, in my forearm, uh, in, in that flexor, um, tendon. And when did that start? Was that in spring training from the moment you got going? It's in the off season. I remember throwing, um, across LSU's indoor 52 yards. So you know, 150 feet, I was just, you know, just starting out throwing. And I remember, um, you know, throwing a ball with Patrick Coogan, who was a, a third round pick with the Cardinals in 97, a uh, good friend. I remember throwing and, and, and it felt like it grabbed on, on one, on one throw, but it wasn't on like the tendon. It was up in the flexor watt and I could still throw the ball just as well. It was just, you know, it just kind of bothered me. So I kept, you know, that was in probably January. I went into spring and, you know, they're like, okay, 
you know, you don't have to push as hard as you have the last couple of years. Just make sure you're ready. Um, you know, make sure you're healthy. And I couldn't get the ball down in the zone. I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do, but the velocity was still there. I was still throwing, you know, somewhere between 89 and 93, 94, every, every pitch, it was still coming out the same as it had. I just had lost command, just that little bit of inflammation in there. I, I was vocal with our trainers. I was vocal with our doctor, our ortho and, but I was also caught in that mindset of, man, everybody hurts. So do I say something loud enough that they shut me down? Because I, I just, Carlos Beltran, Jason Grimsley, and Mike Sweeney, all these guys are telling me they need me. And I'm too young to know better and just go in there and put my heel down. So I went out and, and I, I had a bad camera. I was bad spring. And my first two outings in the big leagues were, were terrible that year. And when I got sent down to, you know, AAA, you know, all I could think is, you know, I'm hurt and I should have said something. I remember talking to my agent and I wasn't vocal enough. I just flat out should have said, let's go get an MRI. It's, it's, it's a day out of our life to make sure that we understand things. Um, but you, you don't do that, especially when you're young and in the big leagues and trying to, you know, be established. I just wanted to, you know, be there. I should have had a year or two in the big leagues um, on the DL, but I went down to AAA um, and in my first outing down there, I threw a change up and everything went numb. And I actually threw two or three more pitches, and my fingers were still numb. But Brett Laxton, who's a buddy of mine, he was doing the gun for us with Omaha. And he said it was 92 in the warm-up. He said, no, he's fine. Thank God. And I, I walked off. Um, you know, we went and had an MRI in, in Kansas City. It came up fuzzy because uh, it was inflammated. I ended up going down to, um, you know, the spring training site, Haines City, Florida, and rehabbed for – you know, two months, it never felt better. It never felt much worse. It was just there, never quite got going. And then uh, they finally sent me off because I just lied my way into, you know, okay, I want to pitch. So I lied my way into going to Wichita. <clears throat> and uh, uh, while I was throwing there, I had an outing where we were in San Antonio and, and um, Gil Mesh, who's from Lafayette, Louisiana, he said, uh, he, he came over to the dugout and was like, Derby. You know, what were those last two pitches? And I was like, fastballs. He goes, no, they weren't. They were 78 and 80. You need to tell them you're done. And our manager dog cussed him. And he goes, shut up. And, you know, you, you, and, and a bunch of choice words. And, and it was just him saying, man, you're done. And he was down on his shoulder. You know, surgery was coming too. He was hurt too. And so from that moment, and that was in late August. From that moment, I mean, we made the phone call. Okay, we need to go see Dr. Andrews. We go see Dr. Andrews on like September 3rd and on September 5th, 2002, I had surgery. It was like boom, 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 which the surgery should have happened in probably February or March of that year. So I lost that whole year. And, uh, you know, you go through that kind of, you know, that kind of surgery again, the black box works well for me. It just is what it is. Okay. I have to have surgery. And he gave me the choice. So you, you're, you're, you could come back from this, but it's never going to, it's never going to fully heal. This is going to be an every year injury. Your shoulder looks fantastic. The elbow tends to fix better. Let's fix it. So, and Dr. Andrews actually was a, a like a 1969 pole vault champion at LSU, uh, which I came out of, <laughs> I must've read something about it. Cause when I came out of, of surgery from being out, um, I, I was, they, he put me back under cause I kept talking about his national championship. <laughs> okay. Do you guys know Dr. Andrews is a national champion? And he's like, Oh my God, put the kid back under. Um, so obviously in decent spirits, but that, that off season was all, you know, 
two a days basically. I went in to the, the the hand surgeon or the hand rehabilitation place, and that's what you know you do your whole protocol. And I remember the fear of you know, and nobody understanding it other than like Kurt Ainsworth, who had had Tommy John surgery that I talked about that you know grew all those inches and was a first rounder. So you gravitated to those guys, like, hey man, how was it? You're like, man, it sucks, but you, it'll it's going to happen. You just got to put in the work. And I was a hard worker. So I busted my butt in the protocol. Um, by the time that three months had gone by, I felt like I was in a pretty good position to make it back in, in the protocol's um, time range. And in December, I had gone up to Indiana where my mom lived, Warsaw, Indiana. And I was, uh, it was a couple days before Christmas. Um, and Allard Baird called me. He was the GM with the Royals. And he said, Chad, uh, you, know, you probably already know this. You're a smart kid but we're going to go ahead and non-tender you. And to be dead honest, Kyle, I'd been around for a little while, had no idea what the hell a non-tender was. And that's it for part one of our talk with Chad Durbin. Again, if you enjoyed this interview, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Part two is going to drop on Tuesday, May 19th. Tune in for that. I've uh, got a couple upcoming guests on from Phenom to the Farm as well. They're going to be great talking to uh, another former Royal, Billy Butler, talking to Lane Adams, and then talking to 2009 fourth-round pick of the Pittsburgh Pirates, good friend of mine, Zach Dotson. Again, make sure you're checking out BaseballAmerica.com every day for new content. Got the draft coming up, uh, hopefully getting some real baseball content sooner rather than later. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Banduho, and we'll catch you in two weeks with part two of our talk with Chad Durbin.